0: Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation to the changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pollane, a designer, educator, and writer, and currently Group Director of Client Evolution at Fjord. My guest today is Ariel Waldman. Ariel makes massively multiplayer science, creating unusual collaborations that infuse serendipity into science and space exploration. Ariel, welcome to Power of Ten.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, normally, I do a bit of a longer kind of bio of people and explain what they've done, and it's usually something like, so this person studied here and started designing here, and then they started designing there, and now they do this. But as I started to do it for you, I realized it would be, be very long, because uh, <laughs> you're truly a, a polymath, but you're also kind of all over the, the internet, and you do lots of different things. So could you tell us what you do?
1: A lot of my work is about getting uh, people from all different backgrounds to contribute to science and space exploration. I'm an advisor to NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, a program that funds more futuristic sci-fi and out there ideas that could be helpful for future space missions. I am also the global director of Science Hack Day, which is an event in 30 countries around the world that gets all different types of people together to see what they can prototype in one weekend. And uh, beyond that, I've authored a, a book called What's It Like in Space. I've co authored a National Academy of Sciences report on the future of human spaceflight. And I just like to work on a lot of fun things. And my background is that uh, I went to art school and uh, my degree is in graphic design. So I very much made a jump from the design world into science and space uh, very unexpectedly. But I kind of try and combine it all together still to this day.
0: So somewhere on your bio, you said you, you stumbled into a gig at NASA. So I'm fascinated to know how how you, you <laughs> stumble into a gig at NASA.
1: Yeah, it, it was uh, very unexpected. I was literally watching a documentary about NASA a few years ago, and it was a documentary about the early space missions and how they were trying to figure out how to send humans into space for the very first time. And something I found really interesting about the documentary was that they were interviewing people from mission control, and they were talking about how they didn't really know anything about spacecrafts or orbits or rocketry when NASA was getting started, and they were having to figure it out as they went along. So I was watching this, and I said to a friend, well, That's awesome. I don't know anything about space exploration. I want to work at NASA. That would be amazing. (laughs) And I I decided then on a whim to send an email to someone at NASA that I had never met, uh, didn't know anything about them, um, saying that I was just a huge fan of their work. And if they ever needed a volunteer or something, I was around. And the day I emailed them, they had just put up a job description and uh, said, well, why don't you apply for this job? And I applied and I ended up getting the job. So I was a fan of NASA for all of like a couple of weeks at that point. So it was this, unexpected.
0: It sounds like such an unbelievable story. I said, well, I was watching TV and then I, so I just emailed NASA and then someone wrote back to me and then I got a job.
1: Yeah, and things like that happen. I, I recently went to Antarctica and I talked to a guy down there who was watching Anthony Bourdain's show about him going to Antarctica. Mm. And he did kind of the same thing. He just emailed someone about it, applied for a job and ended up down in Antarctica <laughs> thanks to Bourdain's show. So it happens, I guess.
0: So I feel like there's a little, must be a little bit that we're missing here though, because you said you went to art school, you studied graphic design. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about space, but you mu- uh, presumably you have had some kind of interest in science and engineering or space or, or something. Or did you just study the wrong thing at, at college? What what happened there? Uh,
1: no, I generally wasn't very interested in science or space. I mean, you know, it's like yeah, sure, I watched Star Trek, and <laughs> you know, I <laughs> you know, I didn't dislike space or science, but it never was very interesting to me. And I, I don't really blame anyone for that. It's when I was pretty. Young, I was into art a lot, and then when I was 14 years old, I got it into my head that my dream job was to be an executive creative director, and I worked my butt off for years towards that goal. Um, and I was just obsessed with design, and and I, I mean, I still am. And so, yeah, science and space were, you know. Uh, I didn't dislike them, but they weren't really something I saw as a dream or or something that I was particularly more interested in than anything else. And so actually, it really wasn't until watching that documentary and and then getting the opportunity that it really turned me around. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, I think there's a lot of things people would find interesting if they were given a salaried job to do it. But those opportunities to just jump into a place or jump into a place as special as NASA aren't always around or aren't always promoted or, or people aren't aware. And so that's what really set me on the mission that I've been on since I got the job at NASA was trying to really um, illuminate for people all the ways in which you can contribute to space exploration and science without leaving your current career, ways in which people have valuable ways of looking at the world outside of space and science that can still benefit space and science.
0: So, I mean, if I was doing, I mean, I share similar fascination and, you know, I'd read Chris Hadfield's book and I'm saying, oh, this sounds incredible. And uh, who also had a, a similar kind of journey in the sense that he at least, you know, saw the moon landing on TV and, like, a lot of kids thought that's what I want to do and eventually did. But I I guess part of me would be thinking, well, okay, so NASA is a very special place, and I think it's probably perhaps one of the few places where you might be able to just kind of jump in like you did. But I, as a fluffy designer, might be thinking, well, you know, but they're all going to be engineers and scientists, and they're going to be kind of very, very driven by data and, and numbers and um, I'm going to struggle culturally there but you've completely flourished so is my understanding of or my imagination of what NASA is like completely wrong and that's part of your job is to kind of turn that perception around or is do you think you have a particular take on it?
1: Well I think it's really the, the fact that I find that a lot of science and uh, space institutions whether it's NASA or academia or, or what have you are kind of, uh, I don't know how to say this in a way that's not as offensive as I mean, but they're kind of half-baked. And and by that, I mean they don't have all the resources that they need in order to make their work as awesome as it possibly could be. So for instance, what often happens at NASA or other science institutions when they need to make a website or they need to make a podcast or something like that, they, instead of saying, okay, we're going to find someone who lives and breathes websites or someone who lives and breathes podcasts, and we're going to bring them in and have them help us. Instead of doing that, They look around at everyone who already works there and says, who can build this website? Who can do this podcast? And those people, you know, might have some skill to be able to do that, but they're not coming from an entirely different discipline. And so you don't get people who can really make something incredibly awesome who live and breathe other areas. So having a design background and coming into NASA is an incredibly valuable thing. You know, people might not. Entirely understand it at first. It really just depends on the people. But when you can show them what you can do, you become that awesome rocket scientist engineer in your own right because you have your own set of skills and your own ways of looking at things that is entirely new. And that's where a lot of value can be added. And it's true whether or not it's a website or working on a future space mission. What I quickly realized by getting this job at NASA was that NASA and, and other places really need people from a lot of different backgrounds in order to truly be successful. And by staying so narrowly uh, focused on people from only one specific type of discipline, in a way, it, it could almost be seen as reckless because they're missing out on a lot of expanded and serendipitous ways of doing things um, that might not exist unless they actually engage a broad audience of people.
0: So one of the things you've done a, a lot of is getting those kind of people together to create the serendipitous connections. Uh, to, as far as I of understand it, that's what Science Hack Day is basically trying to kind of also get people to do. I saw some examples of it. There's lots of people who didn't kind of collaborate previously who sort of end up doing unusual things or things outside of their field or extending mm-hmm. what they do. So tell us a little bit about Science Hack Day.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got it right. So Science Hack Day is all about getting people from all different backgrounds together in the same physical space to see what they can rapidly prototype with science in 24 consecutive hours. And so we have particle physicists and uh, designers, technologists, um, lawyers, roboticists, writers, people from all over. And uh, we have a lot of people who are like, I don't have any skills. Can I still show up as like, yes, Uh, the, the whole thing is you don't need to have any specific skills or uh, feel like you're an expert in anything. It's really just about wanting to show up and and figure out how to prototype something over a weekend, even if you've never prototyped anything in your life. And what I really love about Science Hack Day is that it's not an event where scientists are like the mentors or or sort of the people in which everyone's trying to learn from. Scientists are learning from designers as much as designers are learning from scientists. And that's what I really love. So some people uh, will work with science data who have never worked with science data before, but equally you have scientists uh, working with design programs and, you know, prototyping on Arduinos for the very first time and they're learning new things. And so really, It's essentially the thing that I would like to happen in the world organically on its own, but I discovered doesn't really happen. So I wanted to give people an excuse to be able to come together and and, uh, collaborate in that way.
0: Why do you think it hasn't been organically happening?
1: Uh, people are weird. I don't know. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, part of the reason I brought it to San Francisco was because in San Francisco, you've got Google and you've got Genentech and and NASA, you've got essentially big tech in Silicon Valley, and you've also got big science. You've got these huge science centers and they're right, right next to each other. So you would think there'd be all this amazing collaboration, especially like Google and NASA are next door neighbors. So you would think they'd be hanging out with each other for lunch and dreaming up cool collaborations, what have you. So a perfect example was I had some friends from NASA visiting Google years ago and they were tweeting going like oh my god we're at google this is so cool but then i also heard about like people at google going like there's people from nasa here oh my
0: god you know and
1: so it's like they love each other so you, but they don't hang out with each other and i thought that was ridiculous and so that was definitely part of the motivation for science hack day was saying well clearly we need some excuse to put all these people in the same place even though they're right next to each other
0: So um, is the CoLab program, or was the CoLab, is the CoLab program Mm -hmm. still going?
1: No, unfortunately, that program ran out of funding uh, shortly after I joined. Um, So the CoLab program was yeah, all about bringing people uh, from communities inside and outside of NASA together. And so part of the reason I was hired at NASA initially was because they thought it was valuable to actually have someone who had no experience with NASA to help bridge that gap.
0: And so do you think it has been helpful to, because I mean, now, you know, if we look at your, your very well followed YouTube channel, um, when you talk about, you know, neutrinos and things, you you talk with great authority about them. Do you think it's been helpful for you not to have that kind of almost like that sort of naive point of view and say, listen, you know, what are neutrinos? Can you tell me about them? And then, because you're seeing them with those kinds of fresh eyes, and then can reflect that back in, in the videos you make.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think coming from a different discipline and later in life, and I say later, relatively speaking, you know, just like not a teenager, I guess, but like coming into science later means that you sort of hold on to and remember when you've learned everything for the first time. And I think a lot of people forget how valuable that is in in any discipline, just remembering the first time you learned something that was maybe obvious to other people, or or maybe not even obvious. That's very valuable. But I would say also, for me, coming from a design background, being trained in essentially communication and knowing with design how, if you tweak things one way or the other, how it changes communication and how it changes perception is incredibly valuable. Because I feel that designers, whether or not they're good public speakers, know a whole lot about communication and just how to wield it. And so coming into any discipline outside of design, if you apply yourself to any other discipline, you're going to have a leg up because of sort of that training in communication.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's one of the things we kind of take for granted quite a lot. But at the same time, it sounds like that kind of... And an extreme expertise is kind of normalized as well at NASA, that everyone around you is equally sort of expert, so you kind of lose some of the amazingness or the awesomeness in actually the kind of proper definition of that word about what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. So your job has been also to get people inside uh, NASA to collaborate with each other. So was it different kind of culturally then to get those kinds of people to collaborate together, or were they open to it? What was it like?
1: It was interesting. So yeah, I got this initial job at NASA in 2008. And for NASA, that was an interesting time because they really were not fully up to speed on social media at all. A lot has changed over the last decade with NASA and um, their relationship with social media. But in 2008, there were a few people using social media, but it still wasn't an accepted practice across the board. So this idea also that comes with social media of being more open and open data and open source and everything was still new to them at in that year, <laughs> even though it, these were all things that uh, anyone who worked in those areas, it wasn't new. So getting people to work together or open up their stuff, I wouldn't say people were against it, but it was definitely still a new thing uh, that didn't exactly make sense. And I feel like for a lot of these things to be successful, you need people to understand them in a way that these sorts of things like opening up your information um, is just like a natural part of things instead of an extra piece of work. And, And so that was definitely... A major struggle was trying to get people to understand ways in which it can be integrated so that it won't feel like extra work in order to open stuff up, as opposed to what a lot of people viewed, which was, I'm already overloaded. Now you're telling me I have to do all this extra stuff on top of it, and you have no idea how people are going to use it. So there was definitely that stuff, but I think that wasn't specific to NASA. I I ran into those sorts of issues at, at other organizations. I think the thing that did excite a lot of NASA programs, though, were the idea that they could actually get help with things where they are overloaded or underfunded. And I think that's always been the most valuable part. So even though a lot of science institutions have the problem of being sort of narrow and not reaching out as much as they should, they do like the idea of people actually wanting to help them. And so I think a lot of education is just around how to be open to people helping you in ways that you can't anticipate, because I think a lot of them no specific things that they would like help on because they're overloaded. So a lot of movement around my work is trying to get people to open up to possibilities that they haven't thought through and getting them to be open to the fact that those could be incredibly valuable to them, even if they can't see it right now. So a lot of times I'm just trying to open people up for more serendipity by having collaboration from people from backgrounds in which they can't anticipate how they would be helpful yet.
0: Right, and storytelling plays a a massive part in that, I'm guessing, all the way through. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking of which, you wrote a book called What's It Like in Space? Stories from Astronauts Who've Been There. It's not a kind of Carl Sagan star. what's it like in space? It's really quite... there's lots of little snippets of the day-to-day of people's lives. I mean, there's other stuff in there too. But that was the kind of fascinating bit for me was the kind of hacks, actually, I think. And some of them are social hacks. So I've just got the page here of um, the sock over the doorknob. The, the thing about, you know, in space, a towel over the circular entrance to a docking compartment is the mm-hmm. orbital do not disturb sign. That kind of No one actually thought, oh, we're going to, we need to design for this. We need to design for something. <laughs> there seems to be an awful lot of things that... Um, in the book, they're very much like that of the kind of social design, I think, and social hacks that have happened.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a a way of putting it. For me, I I really wanted to make a book about the more funny and embarrassing stories that people have had in space, something to make it a bit more lighthearted, because, you know, going to space is a big deal. But I had in my career, been meeting a number of astronauts and and had the great privilege to actually sit down with a number of them one-on-one. And they would tell me just these silly, ridiculous stories about when they had been in space. And I kept coming home with these funny stories from astronauts <laughs> to my husband <laughs> and then thought, well, maybe I should make them into a book since not everyone gets to hear these stories. So I, I really wanted to Showcase a different side of space exploration that, yeah, sometimes shows the mundane stuff, but it shows kind of the silliness in the mundane stuff and also all the the gross stuff that you have to deal with, with going into space. And so, yeah, stories about the fact that you can't burp in space without accidentally throwing up or, yeah, or the fact that, that. you know... Yeah, space for the first four days is incredibly uncomfortable because your face becomes really bloated. And, you know, just things where people are like, yeah, space, not so great, is it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It sort of came across when I was reading it. It's like a kind of giant kind of road slash camping trip in a vehicle you've never ever been in before. Everything's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, that there was a lot of things, hacks and bits of gaffer tape and all sorts of things. There was lots of bodily function stuff. There was a lot about yeah. going to the toilet <laughs> and things and how difficult that is. I guess all the stuff you take for granted, right, when there's gravity mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and when it's not there. It's, there was a lovely, um, one of the stories was about um, astronauts coming back and forgetting that there's gravity on Earth and just mm-hmm. then throw a cup to everywhere. see Or how- <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, just let something go, expecting it to float yeah but you also said that you know they're they're often inspired to explore space with a kind of childlike wonder and that really really appealed to me that there is quite a lot of kind of playfulness in many of the stories do you have Mm -hmm. any favorites of that kind of thing
1: oh i have all sorts of favorites i think i you know some of them are the more mundane ones like for me like one of the stories i really liked just i think because i could just personally relate to it a lot was um I interviewed uh, Anusha Ansari, who's the first Iranian to go into space, also the first uh, woman to go into space, uh, privately funded. And so she wasn't a government astronaut, uh, but she trained with all the astronauts and and went through, you know, a lot of rigorous stuff to go up there. But she was talking about how, you know, usually you have like these zippered or Velcroed pockets, so you don't lose stuff. And she had some lip gloss or something like that. And she had put it in her pocket but forgot to close her pocket. So it floated out of her pocket. Here she is in space for the very first time. And she can't find her lip gloss. She's not worried about losing the lip gloss. But, you know, you're in the International Space Station. A lot of things could break if there's, like, things flying around in it. And so she lost it. And she's like, oh, my God. Like, this could, like break a bunch of modules or, or, you know, like ruin something and I'm in space for the first time and oh my God, they're going to kill me and I'm being such a klutz. And like, you know, so she just conveyed to me this total embarrassment of having lost something, totally worried she was going to screw everything up being embarrassed in front of other people. And so she stressed about it for like a couple of days or something before fussing up to the main captain or whatever (laughs) in the International Space Station. And he was like, oh yeah, no big deal. Like all the stuff that floats around gets like caught in this like one venting system and it'll probably be there. And of course it was there and everything was fine. But when she was telling me this story about just how embarrassed she was and just how much it was that whole like, first day at school or like new kid at work or something, you know, feeling and, but you're in space and feeling that way. I loved that story just because I'm like, oh my God, that's totally how I would feel. And I feel like with a lot of government astronauts, not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty buttoned up and they're like, oh, yes, we knew everything we were doing. There was nothing we didn't know. So it was really delightful to get to hear from someone who was just like, yeah, I was totally worried I screwed everything up and that they were going to hate me and I was going to be seen as like this completely incompetent person.
0: (laughs) There's got to be a whole book around sort of insecurity in space. uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also talked about Vance Brand, who he was sort of fell asleep floating and then he mm-hmm. sort of woke up and was really scared because his hands were in flight. Well, something was hanging in front of his face. Yeah, it was it, his, yeah, own it's hands, his hands. Right? <laughs> So it just does sound like you've got the best job in the world, I have to say. So, um, <laughs> as I talked to you before the recording, you know, Power of tens named after the Ray and Charles Eames film Powers of Ten, which kind of zooms in, or zooms out to the all the way through to the kind of uh, beyond the solar system, and then and back mm-hmm. down into subatomic level. And actually, the, the videos you make are kind of cover all those different levels of zoom you've had. I talked about neutrinos before, but um, hacking a particle accelerator to videos of other solar systems. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, Antarctica and kind of like space exploration are are kind of in the middle. Are there any kind of patterns or common elements or ideas and principles that you've kind of observed when you've been thinking about or talking about telling stories about things at all those different levels?
1: I think, for me, the thing that I've been talking about a lot recently that's dealing with those different levels is, you know, I went to Antarctica to study life under the ice, to actually film microscopic life underneath the ice to showcase that there's a lot of life in Antarctica, but you just can't see much of it. Mm. And so, I became on this journey to trying to get down to Antarctica, I became a certified microscopist, uh, which was another unexpected turn for me. But And so I'm in Antarctica and I'm filming these microbes, but so much of it has to do with showcasing how we might be able to find life on other icy moons in our solar system, Um, because there's a number of moons in our solar system that uh, have thick layers of ice, but are thought to have um, oceans underneath those thick layers of ice. And so they could potentially have microbes of some sort on them. We don't know. And so I feel like there's a lot in terms of storytelling when talking about scale of sort of realizing how special Earth is and and using that as a way of exploring our solar system or other exoplanets or the galaxy or, you know, what have you. And I think that's... That's been something that's been actually an interesting journey for me personally, because when I started working at NASA, I definitely became a major space geek from it. And I was like, oh my God, dark matter and going to the edge of our solar system and you know our galaxy is really awesome. I got really excited about all these planets and and all these things in space. And now that I'm a decade into this career, it's been an interesting journey for me because I used to think it was kind of, I don't know, I guess I'll be honest. I thought it was kind of lame when you would ask a lot of astronauts, like, what's your favorite planet? And they'd say Earth. And I'd be like, (laughs) snore. Like, that's so boring. Like, why would you say Jupiter? Like, come on, like something. There's so many awesome planets. But I have to admit that now that I'm like a decade in, I've kind of come full circle and... The more you study space, the more you are really just enthralled with what is going on on Earth, just Earth as a planet in general. You just, you know, obviously, yes, it's special. There's not like human beings walking around on other planets, but there's just so much about it that is so fascinating when you come back to it from the viewpoint of studying all of space, so to speak. And so, I feel in terms of that powers of 10 and scale and everything, really looking at Earth as this really fascinating planet and and using it as a way of understanding other planets and understanding other moons and how things might be possible in other places is, is what's really exciting. So I feel like the more I study Earth, the more close I feel to understanding you know, other planets places in our solar system and in our galaxy and other galaxies. And, and that's what's really exciting to me.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a bit of a pattern I saw of that. I think that there was, seems to be quite a lot of um, transferring knowledge from one domain into another. And that's where some of the kind of discoveries and interesting stuff comes from. And um, that's why they're, they're hacking the particle accelerator one. Um, I'm laughing because you start off talking about these particle accelerators that have been built and they're huge, right? They're massive mm-hmm. pieces of infrastructure. They're yeah. kind of, you know, it's like a long piece of motorway or something, you know. And and then they're kind of not needed anymore. <laughs> uh, and so people started hacking them. I'm sure it's a mm-hmm. little bit less um, simple than that. But um, can you talk about the um, the photosynthesis thing? Because it's really interesting. Sort of, there's this annoying thing that this thing does, but actually, yeah, we can it, use that in a different way.
1: Yeah, that was something that I really <laughs> just loved, which is, yeah, there's these particle accelerators. And and when you build a bigger, better particle accelerator, oftentimes the old ones aren't very useful anymore um, because, you know, they've studied all they can study. They're not really needed. So, yeah, you have these huge pieces of infrastructure that are incredibly costly to decommission and and take apart. So a lot of times they just sit there which is unfortunate. But yeah, at the Slack Accelerator Laboratory, which is in Silicon Valley, it's this long linear accelerator, and they had been having issues where when electrons in the particle accelerator would wiggle or sort of go off course, they would produce these tiny little X-rays, which were really annoying. So they tried everything that they could do to stop the electrons from wiggling. And when Slack ended up getting decommissioned eventually. Some people were like, well, this thing is creating tiny little x-rays by accident. What could we use tiny little x-rays for? And they realized, you know, if you have tiny little x-rays, you essentially have tiny little flashlights that you can shine on interesting things in the world. And so they actually um, hacked, uh, in, in my View uh, the Slack accelerator to actually on purpose wiggle these electrons. So they're they've got these things called wigglers, uh, which do exactly that, which get them to go off course and wiggle on purpose. And they produce these tiny, tiny little X rays. And those tiny X rays, because they are so small and so um, quick, they can essentially film photosynthesis happening at the molecular level in a movie-like format which uh, hasn't ever been seen before so they've got this entire project um, all around trying to produce movies of photosynthesis happening at the molecular level and that's really important because if we can actually really really understand how photosynthesis works which we don't fully understand just yet then we have a shot at actually making artificial photosynthesis for our infrastructure for biology, for what have you. It's an incredibly powerful process that biology has developed here on Earth to be able to do that. And so, the more we can harness photosynthesis for ourselves, I think there's a lot of imagination of what we could do with it. Um, So, that's really cool to me, the the fact that these uh, accelerator laboratories all over the world have been looked into and sort of like, well, what could we do with them that is not <laughs> their main mission but um, is maybe born out of things that were annoying or frustrating with them.
0: So that's again sort of, I think something that would really resonate with many designers a lot of people I think get into design because of that feeling like why is that done that way Or that this could be done a better way or there's something here that I could do differently or I can see how it could be done differently so if there's listeners like me there's probably kind of plenty of people feeling like oh I'd love to be doing this how might they start getting involved in something like this?
1: Yeah, it really, it just depends. I mean, there is ways in which you can do basic things, which is just realizing that you yourself as you exist right now are valuable. And and for some people, it's as simple as looking at, you know, job listings on NASA or, you know, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which actually hires a lot of um, designers and, and interesting people. Sometimes it's as simple as that of just like not closing yourself off to applying to, you know, random places. I've probably applied to Pixar, even though I'm not an animator and I have nothing to offer. But I'm like, it would be awesome to work at Pixar. Why not? You know, um, sometimes it's that. Um, Other times it's about creating open resources if you have a skill set to do so. So the very first thing that I did when I left that NASA job, because I only had it for a very short time, was, you know, I got this job at NASA and I realized, well, I don't want to just like work on space exploration. as just some blip. Like I'm now hooked. Like I really want to do more stuff in space. But all I had was this blip on my resume of working at NASA for a few months, um, not very long at all. And, and I wanted to prove that I was valuable and, and had things to add. So That's when I built um, spacehack.org, which is a directory of ways in which anyone can participate in space exploration. And this is because I just heard about a bunch of interesting projects either run out of government or or nonprofits, in which people without formal science backgrounds could contribute to space exploration. So this was things like being able to test out spacesuits or being able to discover galaxies or or all these interesting projects where you didn't have to have a science background. And I decided to just build initially a, a WordPress site just as a directory of all these different things and sort of retranslate them in in Mm. a way in which anyone could understand them and and so that anyone could find them easily because they were just difficult to find. And that's what really started to allow me to crawl back into having a career in space exploration over time was saying, okay, well, I'm launching this website that's going to make it easy for anyone to discover opportunities in which they can contribute to space exploration. And yeah, that was just because I had enough skill set (laughs) to build a WordPress site, design it and sort of retranslate things in a way that people could understand. And so I feel for some people, you know, if you have the ability to make YouTube videos or make a WordPress site or even just, you know, start a blog where you're documenting something that isn't well documented that needs to sort of exist in the world, that's a way in which you can begin to get the attention of people who work in the space industry or whatever industry it is that you want to get involved in and sort of build relationships that can over time sort of blossom into proving that you belong in that industry. And sometimes to get the actual job, it it might take a while, but you might start getting speaking gigs where people want you to come speak about the things that you've built. And, and again, this is just a good way of getting into anywhere is, is kind of just the concept of making things and, and getting them out there that's certainly one direction in which you can consider. I think also just connecting with people who work in the industry that you want to work in is important. And I do think social media has greatly helped that. And at least in the science and space industry, my experience has been that people are usually overjoyed to talk to you about you know, how you could get involved or, or how you could connect with people. I think certainly connecting with people in social media, making things without having permission to make them, just making things that you think should exist in the world. And then, yeah, just throwing your hat into the ring of, you know, job postings and things like that, rather than, you know, discounting yourself are, are three ways to at least get started.
0: That's very inspiring. And look at you. I mean, you you sent an email to NASA and got a job. Yes, yeah. You're the proof. So look, we're coming up to time. Um, because of the, the theme of Power of Tin, um, I always ask guests, what one small thing they feel has an outsized effect so it's either something that exists already or something that should be or could be redesigned to have an outsized effect on the world what would yours be
1: uh i mean since my head is sort of in this space i would say microbes for sure i think people don't really think about how much microbes affect us. And, and there's a growing, you know, awareness about things like the microbiome and and things like that, like ways in which our microbes inside our body are affecting us, but also just the, the microbes that live around us every day. So much of my work in Antarctica was filming these because, you know, you see all these nature documentaries and you think you have this complete picture of what the earth is like in, in the nature documentaries, they show you ants walking around. So you think you know all the small things, but there's things incredibly smaller than ants that are just like as fascinating and and charismatic to sort of watch. There's these tiny, tiny animals known as rotifers and tiny animals that more people know about called tardigrades that are able to survive these extreme environments and, and they just live everywhere on earth. I think the fact that we don't have a good awareness about all of these very tiny animals, they're not even bacteria, but they are tiny animals that live on Earth, I think um, means that we don't really have a complete picture of just how habitable our, our home planet is and, and what that has to say about our possibilities for finding life elsewhere in our solar system and certainly our galaxy. So to me, the, the tiny things that have an outsized effect are, are microbes for sure.
0: It's perfect that you've got, you've zoomed all the way out from the beyond our solar system back down into microbes. Love it. Errol, uh, thank you very much. People can find you on com. They can also find uh, you on YouTube. If they Google you, it's called Ariel Space Time or Errol Wardman. I guess you'll find either of them. Uh, you're also Ariel Waldman on Twitter. Where else can people find you? Is there anywhere else that people yeah, should know? I'm.
1: Ariel Waldman on on most places um, I'm also on uh, Patreon as Ariel Waldman and Instagram and kind of yeah just Google my name you'll find
0: me <laughs> So I guarantee it's worth googling and finding I, I, I went through <laughs> quite a lot of time just looking through all the videos and we didn't really get to talk about the Antarctica stuff because you've got a whole series of those as well on your YouTube channel and they're fascinating Ariel thank you very much for being my guest on Power of 10.
1: Yeah thanks so much for having me
0: Thanks for listening to Power of Ten. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, visit thisishcd.com, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Dr. John Curran, and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion. You'll also find the transcripts and links mentioned in the show, and where you can also sign up to our newsletter, join our Slack channel, to connect with other designers all around the world. My name is Andy Pallain. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.